Come, Holy Spirit, come. Teach us the Word of God. Fill us with the love of God and transform our hearts to know the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ our Lord. Someone uh, tell Bob that his... You can even trade cards. Microphone is on. I found a good sign. The sign says, no one is too bad for Jesus. A lot of people think they are too good for Jesus, though. Hmm. It's uh, apropos because of our gospel lesson today. Jesus has grumbling, mumbling scribes and Pharisees following him around because he has the reputation of welcoming sinners and actually eating with them, which is a very intimate sacramental sign in the Middle East. And so Jesus is eating with undesirable people, people who would be considered unclean by the scribes and the Pharisees. They're outsiders. They don't keep the law, either because they're too ignorant or poor or don't have time, or they're just deliberate, rebellious sinners actively pursuing an openly immoral lifestyle. And all of these people are mixed in together as sinners, except some have the title tax collectors because they're collaborators with Rome, collecting taxes and gouging the people, and they were especially hated. And Jesus is eating and associating with these types of people. What's the matter with Jesus that he would do such a thing? Obviously, he's not holy because a holy person would know not to associate with those type of people. Now, for religious reasons, we don't associate with all types of people in our own lives, right? But for the Pharisees, their intention is helping the children of Israel who have come back from being uh, captured and taken to Babylon, and now they've built their temple, and the Pharisees are trying to help the people keep the law so good that finally the Messiah will come and will deliver them from Roman oppression because... They're being controlled by Gentile power. So the Pharisees think they're doing the right thing. That's the whole point. Jesus, though, is that Messiah come from God and is there to rescue people, to save people in a way that is unknown to the Pharisees. He is there as the Father's representative. And so he is teaching everyone about the nature of who God really is. And Jesus basically says, the nature of God is love and grace and mercy, so much that heaven rejoices when even one sinner repents and finds his way back to the Father. And of course, the implication is, Pharisees, scribes, who were the lawyers, you should be rejoicing too. Because if you want to be like God, this is how God is. And that's the whole, uh, really, foundation of the story. So Jesus tells three 
parables, three stories about lostness and being found in order to combat and to answer the Pharisees mumbling and grumbling, this person eats with sinners and even associates with them. Well, these stories, uh, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons that we know as the prodigal son, which we don't read today, they are only found in the Gospel of Luke. And they are some of the most precious stories in the Gospels because they reveal and focus on the love and the grace and the mercy of God our Heavenly Father. What they basically say is that God is so good that he sees that he sends Jesus to find us in our lostness. That God is so good that Jesus comes to help transform our hearts that we would be able to repent. God is so good that Jesus is sent so our sins can be forgiven. God is so good that he sends Jesus and the Spirit to teach us, to convict us, to empower us for our entire life. The Pharisees and the scribes simply don't know the goodness and the love and the mercy of God. What do they know? They know the holiness of God. They know the law of God. They know the fear of God. But their hearts are not in touch with the mercy and the love and the grace that is God's nature. And because they're not in touch with that, they can't rejoice that a sinner could be found and brought into the Father's house. And how sad that is. So this love and this grace and this mercy is what Christians call the grace of God. The grace of God. And that's the central message of Jesus. It's the central teaching of Jesus and the Christian faith. That God is full of love and grace and mercy for sinners. Paul, in our epistle, mentioned that this worthy saying is that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And Paul, who was a very holy person, says, I'm the foremost of sinners. And you have to really know your lostness to be able to say, I'm the number one sinner. But guess what? There's a teaching in the church that says that all of us are the foremost sinners because no one can be a sinner in the unique way that I am a sinner. So I am the foremost and you are the foremost too because we really can't compare each other because we can't judge each other. So all of us have the great position of being the foremost of sinners because nobody does it quite like we do. I almost started to sing. That was crazy. Um, Okay. So, William Barclay says, There is a wonderful thought here in these parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the, the, the lost sons. And it is the tremendous truth that God is kinder than men and women. God is kinder than us. 
God is better than us. God loves in a deeper way than we are capable of. And that's really good news. Now, we need to catch up with God. (laughs) But the truth is, is that the revelation of Jesus is that God is even more kind than we are, even when we try to be. C.S. Lewis says that God gives his grace where he finds a vessel empty enough to receive it. And really the first point for today is is that we have to know and accept our lostness in order to be found. Now many of us have trouble with that. Many people have trouble with the fact that they don't want to admit that they're lost. But we have to admit we're lost if we're going to be found. We have to admit that we're getting it wrong, that we're not always right, we're not always loving. We, in our liturgy, have uh, an admitting of this with the confession. That's what we're doing. We're admitting that we don't have it right. C.S. Lewis says, Christ and the Christian faith tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It is therefore, it has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know that they need any forgiveness. It is, after all, you have realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind that law, that you have broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power. It is, after all of this, and not a moment sooner, that Christ and the Christian faith begins to talk. When you are sick, you will listen to the doctor. Frederick Buechner says, The gospel is bad news before it is good news. It is the news that the face we see in the mirror is at least eight parts chicken, phony, slob. It is the tragedy. But it is also the news that we are loved anyway, cherished, forgiven, and bled for. That is the comedy. So somehow the grace and the love and the mercy of God comes to us and we realize that we're lost. And then the next step is allowing ourselves to be found and to be taken back home. One of the earliest images in our Christian history is Jesus, the Good Shepherd. It's in mosaics, it's in icons, it's in paintings that they find in ancient churches from the 200s. And one of the earliest depictions of the Christian faith is a shepherd with a huge sheep around its neck that the Good Shepherd is carrying home the sheep that was lost. So this gospel... This gospel helped produce the message of the Christian faith and also the first artwork and depiction of the Christian faith. Interestingly enough, of course, this is an actual uh, historical fact that shepherds would go and retrieve sheep. They would tie up their uh, legs and put them around their shoulders and carry them home. These depictions of the Christian faith almost always have the sheep almost larger than the shepherd. 
And what that saying is, is that all of humanity is lost and needs to be found and brought home. Or the other image that the good shepherd has to exert himself in a very costly endeavor to bring that huge sheep back to the village so they can all rejoice. Where the sheep was lost, but now the sheep is found. Either way, it shows us that God is in the business of saving lost people, of which I am the foremost. Happy to say that. So we have to accept being found. The other image is the coin, the lost coin. Uh, this could be a part of the dowry of uh, a, a woman. It could have been maybe lost uh, in a knotted rag where the, the wages of that week or that uh, month were kept by uh, the woman of the home, and it's lost. And so there's a, a great deal of activity to, to find it. Uh, I think I read something that, that said, what if we were to really talk about the lost iPhone? <laughs> right? We don't, we don't care about coins. We don't even like coins. They're, they're almost worthless. But this is valuable, isn't it? When we lose our cell phone, we start, oh my gosh, where did it go? Can someone call my phone? I mean, we will retrace, we will retrace our steps until we find this valuable instrument. And what happens? We rejoice. Scribes and Pharisees, if you want to be like God, rejoice because the heart of God rejoices when sinners repent, they accept their lostness, and they accept their foundness, and they return to the Father. Of course, we can't really speak about this without actually also speaking about the lost two sons. Because the prodigal son that returns has nothing to commend himself to the father other than he has totally blown it. He has wasted all the money. He has dishonored his father in asking for the money. And now he's coming back. The only thing that he can do, actually, is say, I'll work like a slave for you, Dad. But the father endures the shame of the actions of the prodigal son and does not do what the village expects and actually embraces him and says, you're coming back as my son. And we're going to have a party. And there's rejoicing because the party is actually to honor the father for his grace and love and mercy. Now, who's standing outside the party? The older son. Who says, how dare you give a party for my brother who blew it who wasted all the wages and accuses him of having all sorts of fun along the way. But I just can't be in this party, and I'm not sure where I stand with you, Dad, because you never gave me a party. I've worked, 
and I've strived and I've done the right thing the whole time and you've never given me a party. So the prodigal son is in the house of the father rejoicing in the love and the grace and the mercy of his father being restored and who's outside. Someone that is worried about themselves and their honor and doing things right. And that's where these three stories end. It's open-ended, meaning what are the scribes and the Pharisees going to do? Are they going to get over it? Are they going to come in and join the party and enjoy the rejoicing that takes place in heaven over people who understand their lostness and have nothing to offer God but just accept being found by God and brought into the Father's house by the love and the grace and the mercy of God and therefore can rejoice? Or are the scribes and the Pharisees and anybody else, are they going to be outside because they can't do it? Kenneth Bailey says that the older son is consumed with envy, pride, bitterness, sarcasm, anger, resentment, self-centeredness, hate, stinginess, self-satisfaction, and self-deception. Yet he appears to see his own actions as a righteous search for honor. Let that sink in. The older son is deceived. He's deceived in thinking that he's in the right and he is righteous and that he is maintaining the honor of himself and even the family. Yet he is separated from the father. He's separated from the party. He's separated from the joy of rejoicing in the love and the grace and the mercy of the Father's house. Where do we want to be? Jesus says, rejoice with me twice in these parables. The Father said, let's have a party in the parable of the prodigal son. That's where we want to be. All we have to do is accept our lostness and also accept being found and enjoy the ride home to the Father. Now, I will finish with this last thing, and it's this. This process of lostness and being found goes on the rest of our lives because as Christians... There is a time when we know our lostness and we are found and we are come into the body of Christ. We're baptized. We receive communion. We are in worship. We're in prayer. But the truth is, we're still lost inside. And as we grow, we'll accept those places in us that are still lost and we'll agree with God that that's the truth and will allow God to find us where we are and we will confess it and we will ask God to cleanse us and to heal us and to help us grow. So this is not, not only a one-time action, 
It is a way of life, a way of sanctification, a life of repentance that the grace and the love and the mercy of God is helping us slowly become someone who is just like the Father, who shares in the love and the grace and the mercy of God so much that when people see us and hear us and engage us, they will say, that person knows the love of God because they have become the love and the mercy of God. So we have a process of being lost and found over and over again as we move forward. But let us rejoice. Let us not be outside the party. Let us come inside the party and rejoice every single day in the love and the grace of the mercy that we are found and brought home to the love of the Father. Amen.